RP3 is ready to step his game up and grab the mic for the latest edition of the Rap Game Podcast. Here is Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. The NFL Draft is just less than a week away. First round action will take place on Thursday, live from Cleveland. Second and third round, Friday, and then fourth to seventh on Saturday. Here locally for us in the Acadiana area, we have a couple of guys that have a great opportunity to be drafted, including a local product in Elijah Mitchell from Erath, star running back for the Raging Cajuns. He has an opportunity to be the highest drafted running back since our next guest. He starred at Plaquemine High School before going on to USL, where he starred for four years for the Raging Cajuns, becoming the first player in NCAA history to pass for more than 5,000 yards and rush for more than 3,000 yards. He would end up being drafted 130th overall in the fifth round by the Washington football team, where he would go on to a sensational career, winning a Super Bowl setting numerous NFL records during his longtime NFL career, including earning All-Pro honors three times. He now is part of NBC Sports Washington as a show host and an analyst. He also appears on 106.7 The Fan. It's our privilege to welcome to the Rap Game Podcast the one and only, the Raging Cajun legend himself, Brian Mitchell. Brian, good day to you, sir. How you doing, man? I'm doing well, man. How you doing? Doing great, brother. I appreciate you taking out time of your busy schedule as we gear up for the NFL draft. I want to get your perspective on this because you went through this process, what Elijah Mitchell, Trey Regis for the Raging Cajuns are about to go through this week and everything that they've gone through. Uh, What's that process like going from college star to being drafted and going through all the interviews and everything like that? You know, it's very much like when you're coming out of high school going to college, but they can spend money on you. They can wind behind you, you know. <laughs> and uh, it's basically it's what you've been living for, uh, what you've been working for, and now you get an opportunity. And a lot of people are going to give you a lot of information, you know, things on what, they, what you need to work on, what you should be trying to work on. Uh, you want to get faster. You want to try to get stronger. All those different things. But ultimately, it's still about playing football and trying to get the best opportunity. I know a lot of times people look at exactly where you're going to draft, but I think it's, uh, over my years I figured out if you end up in the right situation with the right team, they give you a better chance of becoming the person that you can be. You know, I was lucky, you know, I was blessed to end up in Washington with uh, Coach Joe Gibbs because he knew how to use me and use uh, use my talents wisely. And I think when you look at guys like Reagan and also uh, uh, Elijah, those guys are going to have an opportunity, but you want them to get into the right position and see what happens. You know, Tom Brady. Tom Brady's a six-round draft pick. If he had ended up somewhere other than New England, does he have the stellar career he's had? Maybe not. But he ended up with somebody who gave him a chance, although he was a six-round draft pick, and then they built around him for years and years to come, and now look at his career. So I hope the same thing happened with those two guys. Brian, when you were going through the process, obviously – uh, they, did NFL teams tell you early on that an opportunity to play quarterback at the next level just wasn't on the table, or did they kind of just kind of ride the fence with you during the draft process? Well, no, they were honest. They said the way you make this team is being a running back, kick return, punt returner, all those different things. Many teams are saying we're going to draft you as an athlete because we know you can do multiple things. But, you know, it never – that didn't affect me. You know, some guys had a dream of playing quarterback in the NFL. I had a dream of playing in the NFL. 
okay? And the dream of playing in the NFL never was in a certain position. So when I was in college and Coach uh, Stokely allowed me to be able to pass the ball, run the ball, I was able to show the teams that I could run it. I, I was I was doable enough to take the hits and keep uh, be, being a, a, a player that can be there for you. Because I always I talk about ability, you know, the best ability is availability. So I tried to be there game in and game out. So I wasn't really that worried about it because I, if I wanted to play quarterback, I had my chance to go to Canada. Saskatchewan Rough Riders had my rights. They were very, very high on me. I had offered me a contract. And I basically told him, I said, I was going to wait and see what happened in the NFL draft. If I got drafted on the first day, and back then you had all those rounds on the first day. That's right. So if, I, if I got drafted on the first day, I was going to definitely go to the NFL. If not, then I was going to go to Canada. So I had an uh, option there, I'll say it like that. Brian, I'm, I'm always intrigued and when I speak to a, a successful athlete at both high school, college, and professional, what it takes to get to that level. Look, you, you came out of high school. You were a, a coveted recruit. You get to the Raging Cajuns, playing for USL back then in the late 1980s, and you just tear it up, man. I mean, first player in NCAA history to pass for more than 5,000 yards and rush for another 3,000. What does it take to go from talented high school kid to record-setting player at the collegiate level? Uh, it takes work, uh, and it takes uh, not being complacent, not being satisfied. Uh, you know, my dad was a military guy, and he basically taught me that way. And when I got to – when I was in the ninth grade, I ended up being the starting quarterback of my varsity football team. And I want to tell people, my, my ninth grade was at the junior high school, eighth and ninth graders, and the 10th, 11th grade, 12th graders were across town. I was the starting quarterback for the 11th, 12th graders. When they gave me that opportunity, Coach, uh, coach uh, Jones ended up being a receivers coach there and ended up coaching me my last two years in, uh, in uh, Lafayette. You know, he gave me that opportunity – but once I got it, my dad was like, you know, you can't rest. You got to work harder now. You got to make sure those guys are going to believe in you and that the coaches give you this opportunity because what you can do and what you're going to keep working to get. So when I got to uh, USL, you know, when I got in the weight room, I didn't lift like a quarterback. I lift like a linebacker or a lineman. You know, I was there trying to make these guys understand, understand that, you know, I'm not going to be a quarterback who's going to sit there and be, you know, that prima donna, that complacent person. I'm going to work as hard as you all. I'm going to show you why you need to follow me and believe in me. And then getting to the NFL, being with guys like Art Monk and Daryl Green and, and uh, you know, Charles Mann, and then especially Ernest Biner, they taught me, you know, it's easy to get drafted. It's hard to stay. So my goal was not to just be a guy who got drafted and was happy. I wanted to be here as long as I can. And I worked as hard as a 14-year vet as I did as a rookie. Walk me through that. What did it mean for you to be selected in the fifth round? I mean, you're the highest drafted running back in Raging Cajun program history. That that record still stands as of right now. That could be broken later this uh, later this coming week. What did it mean for you to be drafted from a, a smaller school, from a smaller conference like USL back then? Well, you know, it didn't. I never thought of it like uh, the smaller school, smaller conference. Uh, I thought about while I was there. I had every opportunity to be the best athlete I can be. Uh, I had a great time. I, had, I met so many friends and still have some long-lasting friendships from it. You know, the school supported me. The community supported me. Uh, Coach, Coach uh, Stokely gave me every opportunity. David Culley, uh, who's now with the Houston Texans, they, these people gave me all opportunity any other school would have. And I've always felt this way. Like, you know, my thank you in football to anyone, to God, 
to my dad, to my coaches, was to try to take my career as far as I could. So when I got drafted, I was just happy to get the opportunity. You know, people were like, well, you should have gone in the second round. should have gone in the third round. I don't care about the round I went in. You know, it's, once we get out there, I'm going to show them that they're not going to outwork me. And I can recall getting there my first year. Somebody asked me, uh, what's USL? I said, you'll find out when we get on the football field. <laughs> and he's like, what you mean by that? I say, I don't give a damn where you're from. Your school is not going to outwork me. I say, I'm already looking at you. You're not going to outwork me. And I think that's the thing that we learn. When we at the schools that are not like the, 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 the Power Five conferences and things of that nature, we learn to get respect, we have to go out and take it and earn it. And you have to be uh, exceptional to get it. Like I just looked at some of Elijah's stats today, four, three, five. Hell, that's nothing to shake a stick at. That's, that's, that's picking them up and putting them down. So I've always felt that way. And when I got here, I wanted to show guys. And, and it didn't take very long. Within a, a year to two, they knew that Brian Mitchell meant business. And every time I told them, they said, where's Lafayette? I said, just keep watching. You're going to find out. You're gonna, it's going to come out of me. And I showed them. Brian, can you tell early on when you're on a team at that level, playing at the highest level of professional football in the NFL, can you tell – when a guy isn't going to be a worker? Like, can you just pick up on it, whether that's practice or film study or whatever it might be? Because those guys tend not to last, right? Can you pick up on that? And the second part of that question is, is that something can be taught? Can you teach a guy when he gets to the NFL how to be a hard worker? Well, yes, you can tell. And I think it can be taught, but the guy has to be willing to learn. You know, for me, I was a question. I was always asking questions. And I already had a chip on my shoulder. So uh, the thing about when I got here, the guys that Coach Gibbs always used as examples, the guys he always praised and talked about. And then I watched what they did after practice. Most times, Ernest, Darrell, Jeff Bostic, those guys were going to do extra work after practice. Young guy that doesn't want to get in their way, I would go to the opposite field and act like I was doing my own thing. But what I was doing is so Coach Gibbs comes up to me one day and he says, one day they're going to invite you over there, but I see what you're doing and I love it. When your head coach comes to you and see that you're trying to put in extra work, now you stop listening to the rookies. I had a lot of rookies say, man, we're going to go to D.C. today. I say, well, I'll go to D.C. after I finish this extra work or after I go look at my film. I tried to do what the older guys did, the guys that were getting it done, and that's why I stayed around. These other guys, they wanted to put their – silver medallion, NFL medallions on, run to D.C. and hang out, and they were going home real quick. I stayed around for 14 years. What is it like playing for Coach Gibbs, and what did he mean to you, not only as your coach, but as a man? Well, I think he meant more as a man than he did as a coach. You know, he's a Hall of Fame coach, unbelievable person, but he also was invested in us and cared about us as a human being. You know, he wanted us to grow as young men and be productive young men in the community. Hell, I still talk to Coach Gibbs today, and every time I see him, I light up, and hell, seems like he lights up too. So, you know, that that's a relationship that's going to be there forever. I'm always have great respect for him. Uh, but just being around a man with that much knowledge and being able, he was able to pass it on. You know, there are a lot of the good teachers out there, but a lot of teachers and a lot of coaches can't really get you to understand what they truly want you to. It wasn't hard for Coach Gibbs. He was able to get it done, and he made me really, really love this game of football even more. You know, I loved it. When I got to the NFL, I thought, you know, you're getting paid, you're going to love it just because of that. No, he made me love the game without even a paycheck. You know, so I got paid for it, 
but I loved doing what I did because it gave me a chance, you know, being a competitor to put my competition and the competitive edge out there every day against people and see where I stand. What was your favorite early memory of playing for Washington and playing for Joe Gibbs? Well, I the favorite for me, we get there and uh, my first year, uh, you know, he comes to me and he says, uh, we used to have uh, Russ Grimm as our emergency quarterback. We're going to have you as the emergency quarterback, so I need you to start learning some stuff. And I said, Coach, I know the offense already. He's like, what do you mean you know the offense? I said, I know the whole offense. He said, why? I said, because I'm a quarterback. So I'm going to learn it all. As he said, so we might need you. Uh, we're going to be playing against Philly. We got a quarterback down. Mark Griffin was down, and I ended up playing quarterback. That's, that's, that, <laughs> that, that's the famous body bag game on Monday Night yeah. Football. Yeah, I played quarterback in that game. And, and the thing of it, I never thought about the actual game or who was hurt. All I thought about was my friends and family at home get a chance to see me play quarterback in the NFL, something I thought I would do. But the ultimate goal is they move me to kick return, and my first time touching the ball, I return for a touchdown. And I think that right there, that ignited something inside of me and jump-started the career that we all saw for 14 years. Back then, the NFC East was just an absolute division filled with a bunch of junkyard dogs, Brian. I mean, the Giants uh, still had Lawrence Taylor, and and they still were being coached by Bill Parcells. The Eagles had Buddy Ryan, and of course, the Minister of Defense, Reggie White, and all those guys. And it was just a brutal division to be in. Uh, What was it like having to play the Cowboys, Eagles, and the Giants twice every single season back then? It was great because we knew if we came out of our, our division, we're probably going to end up in the you know, the team that came out of our division going to end up in the playoffs and end up being somewhere close to the Super Bowl, definitely an NFC Championship game. And that's how it was. You look at it, I think we won it in 92, uh, and then the Giants won the two years prior. Dallas won the three years after. You know, So it was like that. And I think it was you had to be up to play all the time. And I think, you know, Coach Gibbs, his mindset and his competitiveness, uh, that, that, that was something that resonated throughout the, play, the team and the players. We always wanted to play against the best. We didn't like those games where, you know, the fans and the media were like, oh, they should beat this team. No, we wanted to be on edge all the time. And when you're playing against people like Reggie and Clyde Simmons and, and uh, you know, we, uh, uh, Lawrence Taylor and Phil Sims and all of these guys, you had to be on point every day, every game. You know, and, and and that's what you want. You know, just like I, I look at in college, you know, people always tell me, well, who did you all play? I said, we play team. We have to be ready to play every week. It's not like we had no gimme. And, and that's how I was in the NFL, and I loved it. Who was the toughest person you ever went up with or the guy that hit the hardest? And it could be, a, you know, obviously you spent majority of your career on special teams being an absolute star and all pro. It could be a special team gunner. Who, who hit the hardest during your time? Well, to be honest with you, I wasn't hit harder in the pros, uh, hitting harder than anybody that, uh, let's just say, no, the hardest hit I've ever taken in my life, and somebody just asked me this on the radio today, was by uh, Derek, Derek Thomas from Alabama when we played there. <laughs> and I had some hits in college, but I, I, I mean, the pros, I thought I was delivering the blows to them more times. I got knocked out in one game, but it wasn't a hard hit. He just caught me in the right spot. But Derek Thomas is the hardest hit I ever took when he sacked me coming from the blind side and uh, we played them up there. I think we were in Tuscaloosa, we might have played them. And uh, that, that was one that uh, I remember for a few years, 
Say it like that. <laughs> yeah, you, you you weren't the only one that remembers getting uh, absolutely uh, just shot into the ground by uh, the late great uh, Derek Thomas. Yeah, we're talking with the Louisiana Sports Hall of Famer, a member of the Washington Football Team's 70th anniversary team, also in the Washington Football Team's Ring of Fame. You, he is also part of the NBC Sports. Washington as a show host and analyst, and you can hear him on 106.7 The Fan. It's the one and only Brian Mitchell. All right, bud, uh, can we go back to that body bag game? Because that's one of my favorite moments of, of yours. I grew up actually as a Washington fan, so I remember that game like it was yesterday. You, uh-huh. you, other quarterbacks get injured, and Philly had you know talked all that noise, and they were going to come, and they wanted to put you guys in body bags. What's going through your brain when Coach Gibbs says, all right, Brian, I need you uh, I need you to go out there and play quarterback for us. You did well. Uh, you, you completed some passes. You led them some drives. You scored a rushing touchdown. But what's going through your brain after you're seeing not one but two quarterbacks get knocked out of the game already? Well, when he came to me and said, you're in, I thought I was going in at running back or something else because, to be honest, Joe Howard Johnson and Walter Stanley were two returners I was backing up as, kick, as a punt return. I was the leading kick returner. Those two guys got knocked out. Uh, Ernest Viner got nicked up a little bit. Then you had Rippin already out. Then we had Jeff Rutledge and Stan Humphreys. Both of those guys got hurt. So five people I'm backing up <laughs> got nicked up. But like I said earlier, I wasn't thinking about the actual game in a sense. And I think because I was thinking about the fact, because I've always told people, I said, I'm going to play in quarterback in the NFL one day. This is my opportunity to do that. It's Monday night football. So I'm going to get a chance to go out there and play and show what I'm capable of. And I think uh, I was focused on that. And then when I got to the line of scrimmage, I look over and I look at Reggie White, and I'm like, oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> but just like anything, you know, I'm the type of person where I can talk myself into, uh, uh, like Michael Jordan would make up things people said about him. I started saying they don't think I can get this done. And when I got that mindset, you know, it's like just being back in college, just playing quarterback again, going down the field and trying to get to the end zone. You know, I felt that way. I tell people all the time, they always say, you know, did you ever get afraid on the football field? I was like, never. You know, that was my safe haven, being on the football field. I wasn't the biggest, but I thought I was probably as good as anybody out there and I could make things happen. So I got excited about stuff like that. You had over 14,000 yards on kickoffs and another – 5,000 on punt returns. Uh, majority of your records as a return specialist still stand to this day, Brian, all these years later, decades later, <laughs> rather. Mm-hmm. What made you so good at being an excellent elite return man? It, it is a very specific skill set. Not everyone can do it. The closest to you was probably Devin Hester later on with the Chicago Bears. What made you so good at what you did? I think uh, it's two things, not being afraid, because like most guys are talking about you're looking in the sky and everybody's coming to hit you. I never cared about that. My thing was just trying to catch the ball, being secure with the football, and then not having wasted motion. If you watch guys returning kicks and punts today, college, even in the pros, especially in the pros, now I don't think these guys are being taught much. They catch the ball with their feet square, or they catch it running to the side, or they, they catch it backing up. Well, every – moment it takes you to get started, you're allowing the people running down to get five, ten yards closer to you. The way I did it, I came straight. I caught the ball with my foot back, and I went straight ahead. 
to make sure I had the opportunity to get right back into you quicker than you can. I didn't allow you a chance to break down, and I think that is what helped me. And then being bigger, you know, most of the guys are 180, 190. I played, when I got here, I was 198. My first year I played at 205. I ended up playing at 221. So when I was delivering a blow or getting hit, it didn't hurt as much to me as it did to some of those smaller guys out there. And being, you know, longevity, that works. Being able to return for 14 years, you know, a lot of guys can't do it. They think because, well, they start playing another position. No, a lot of times they couldn't take that penalty because some of the craziest people on the football team are on kickoff and punt coverage. They're, they're trying to make sure they open the coach's eyes to what they keep, they, they're trying to do. So they're trying to put a little bit extra oomph, a little bit more harm, put a little bit more harm on you when they hit you. What you're trying to say, Brian, is that a lot of guys that are, are gunners on special teams are kind of crazy. That's what you're trying to say. Yeah, they are. And, and I have to. I tell them all the time, I say, to be a successful return man, you got to be a little crazy too. So <laughs> I would have to say that I, I kind of like was in that same program that they were in. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, let's talk about that. Uh, you really you had the breakout season um, when you took over full-time as the return man. Uh, for Washington, I want to say that was your second season in the league. You led the NFL mm-hmm. with 600 punt return yards and two touchdowns. You averaged 13.3 yards per return. You helped Washington win the Super Bowl, and you were selected to your first All-Pro team that same year. Let's talk about being honored as an All-Pro. First of all, that that's that's even better than being a Pro Bowler, as we know. Yeah. And uh, what was it like? being part of a team that won a Super Bowl and playing in a Super Bowl and dealing with all the stuff that comes with playing in a Super Bowl. You know, I, and this is this is going to be funny to you. Like, at that point, I was just having fun, to be totally honest with you. I don't think I ever took – let's say this. During the offseason is when I took everything super, super serious. I tried to put myself in a position – to uh, be as physically fit as I could for the season when it came, when it came, but once the season came, all I thought about was having fun, you know, enjoying myself out there. Because I, I still looked at it as this is a game where, you know, it, it, like I say, it's a childhood game where you get paid a king's ransom to do it. Well, but I, I never forgot that it was a game, and I think I kept the, the youthful exuberance going on when I played. That allowed me to go out there and never ever get tired of it or get. You know, some people get burned out. I never got to that point because I wasn't sitting there uh, putting too much pressure. Just the off season is always what set it up for me. You know, when the season came around, I knew that I was ready. I knew what I can do. And once the season started, I had fun. So but when we got to the Super Bowl, now I begin to think about when I was a kid. Those things when you see on TV with people, all the camera flashes and things of that nature. You know, you, you hear people talking about it. Now you're living it. That was a, a, a dream come true. But overall, the, the all pro and all, hey, I'm getting ready for next year now. I want to see if I can do it again because I've always believed it. Once you put a good year together, you got to follow it up with another one. Now people won't believe it. It was the truth. Yeah, you ended up doing that now, did you? For, for more than a decade, brother. <laughs> um, you know what I find interesting about you? It's, it's, it's a little quirk about your career is it was entirely in the NFC East. After you left the Redskins yeah. – you signed with Philadelphia, the hated rival, played for them for a couple of years, and then played one more year with the Giants. So how does a, a, a kid from Louisiana, from Plaquemine, that played for the Raging Cajuns, decide, you know what, 
I'm going to spend my entire pro career up here in the Northeast to deal with, with the snow and the wind and everything else that comes with it. Well, when I first got to Washington, I remember we had a game and I had on some long sleeves. And uh, Monty Coleman asked me, what was that? I said, man, it's cold outside. And he said, okay. He went up and he came back with, uh, with some scissors and he basically cut my sleeves at the, at the, like, the shoulder part. And the sleeves went down to my wrist. He said, we don't wear sleeves. You got to be tougher up here. <laughs> so Monty nice. Coleman, who had 25-inch arms, uh, arms, I kind of listened to him. And then when Washington decided they were going to let me go, you know, I have a little, like I said, I'm a little crazy. So I had a little bit of revengefulness in me. So I wanted to see them twice a year, so I went to Philly. And vice versa. When Philly let me go after those three years, I went to New York because <laughs> I wanted to see them twice a year. And I still could see Washington. So it's just always trying to have that edge, something to keep me uh, uh, into it and fresh with my approach at this thing instead of getting uh, tired of it. You know what I mean? You made the transition fairly uh, well, it appears, on the outside looking in, Brian. Once your professional career was wrapped up and you were done playing, you know, you're on television, you're on radio, you've been doing that for years. Um, what appealed to you about transitioning over into the media side of things and just how much fun do you have being on TV and on radio talking about sports? Well, uh, my after my, I think my first year, I saw, I forgot who it was, I saw on TV giving their opinion. And, you know, sometimes people said, and I was like, okay, yeah, you, of course you're saying that because you never did it. And so I start pursuing an opportunity. I heard guys saying that they did radio shows and things of that nature. So I said, well, I would try, I like trying to do that. And I happened to go, went to this place uh, uh, that was the, it was the WHUR, they had a little event. And they were looking for someone to do a, a three to five minute talk on, Mondays to say what we did in the game and on Fridays to predict what, what we're going to try and do. I picked it up. And after five weeks, I was asked to do radio with the actual station that I'm still working with today. So I did that, and then TV came along a little bit afterwards. And, uh, you know, I, I just loved it because it gives me a chance to voice my opinion. And I don't try to play as if I know more than anybody out there, but I think it's, it's uh, uh, some people want to hear from somebody who's been in it. You know, and someone who's going to tell you what they truly feel and believe and not try to BS you and try to sugarcoat things, because I, I don't believe in sugarcoat. And that's one thing I guess everybody around here learned real quickly. You ask me a question, you're going to get my opinion. You're not going to get somebody else's opinion. You're going to get my 100% opinion. <laughs> well, look, I want to transition to that, brother, because now you're part of the media. And it, this is something I've noticed in the last, really the last five to seven years. And, and maybe it's because there's so many outlets now out there, but I'm noticing guys out there talking on national programs, Brian, when they're doing the draft evaluation. We've gone from, well, this is what he does in the 40-yard dash, and this is how, you know, he's a little bit small size. You're hearing it now with Devontae Smith, the Heisman winner. Well, he's only six foot, yeah. 166. And, and those things kind of come, you know, par for the course, right? But I'm hearing stuff yeah. like people talk about Justin Fields. Well, I don't know if he's committed to playing football and I just I scratch my head because I go well first of all how do you know that and how has that how do you how are you proving that when the guy fought to have the season played in the Big Ten and then he didn't opt out or it's just it just seems that the conversation in the draft process now has gone from actual facts and things that matter to a bunch of nonsense as a former player how do you deal with that 
Uh, it pisses me off tremendously because I listen. I've been I've been working in the media now since uh, 1991, I would say. <laughs> uh, so basically, what 30 years now? <laughs> and what I have picked up is at one point there was something that was very very uh, meant when people say he's a journalist, because journalists basically are going to research facts and then they're going to give you their opinions based off of facts. In this day and age now, it's just about who can say the most salacious thing they can, who can get out there the quickest, say something first, you know, and, and they are saying stuff, why? To get clicks. Mm-hmm. I still believe, I still believe in the little thing. Remember that people tell you uh, kids, about kids, how kids will see through your BS, kids will, they know the truth and this, that, and the other. I look at fans the same way. Not trying to say fans are kids, but fans are going to know if you tell them the truth or not. And I'd much rather keep my my respect, you know, my dignity, and, and, and show my character by, I'm not going to just say something because somebody wants me to say it. And you also have to be very careful today. This is, this is the moment, for the last month, I call this lying season, okay, in the NFL. I tell coaches I call it lying season. When they say something, I say, well, it's lying season. So I expect you to say something like that. <laughs> I say it to media people because, there are media people out there. There are GMs right now who's saying Devontae Smith is too small because they want people to think he's too small so he can drop. And then guess what? They can draft. Yep. You get what I'm saying? And so I think people today, you have to be able to decipher between BS and facts and real stuff. You know, Gary Clark was came out of college. He was five nine, 155 pounds. He played 11 years in the NFL. One of the toughest receivers you're ever going to see. Yep. I guess they say he was too small either. You know, uh, Steve Smith, he weighed 175 pounds when he came out of college. He played 16 seasons. He's in the top seven receiving and yards in the NFL history. Um, they say he was too small as well. They told me I was too small to be a full-time running back, and I, they didn't know if I had the, the quickness to be a punt return, kick returner. Well, look what I did. So people doubt people all the time. But Devontae Smith did this in – the SEC, the toughest division in football, in college. He did it for two years. Two years he had over, what, 187 receptions, over 3,100 yards, and he had 37 touchdowns. Nobody cared about his size then. He's going to be playing against the same guys that he played against in college. So why you don't think an NFL team that has all the best of the best can take him from 166 and get him up to 176 or 180, and he can still maintain his speed? No, look, I firmly believe that because he's going to be part of a franchise and they're going to invest in him. And so they're going to give him all the resources to beef him up and do whatever it takes to have him succeed. What I try to tell people, I got drafted. I was 195 pounds. Okay. I ran a 441 then. And 10 years later at 221, after playing 10 years, I ran a 441 again. <laughs> Why did I do that? I did that because I, I knew I had to get a little bigger for the position I was going to be playing. I was dedicated to myself and my craft. I had the proper coaches around me, and I also invested in making sure that I'm going to be best the best I can be, not this year, but the next year I'm going to be better and the next year to keep it going. I watched Daryl Green. At, 40, at 42 years old, I think he ran like a 4-2-40. He retired from the game at 50. He ran a 4-4-8. <laughs> so – it, it, it's, what are you dedicated to? Devontae Smith has been too good for too long for us to question him now, and they do that to a lot of people. But then also there are those people in the, in the media who they push certain people. 
They like them. Like a lot of guys that work with a guy or the guy went to their team, oh, you'll see them promote him at all costs. They'll forget about all the negative stuff about a person, but then they'll find some little mediocre things about another person and talk negative about him. So it's it's human nature. It happens. Wrapping up our conversation with Raging Cajun legend and a man who was a three-time All-Pro, one of the best, if not the best, return man in NFL history, the one and only Brian Mitchell. All right, Brian, uh, give me your thoughts on uh, the first round. What are you looking forward to as a former player and as now as an analyst? What kind of intrigues you about uh, the, the first round for this NFL draft? Well, you're hearing about four or five quarterbacks, and I, I want to see how they're going to fall because how they fall is going to dictate what happens with the other people. And then starting with the offensive lineman, you got Penny Sewell. You know, we've got uh, Darisaw and, and uh, what's the other kid uh, up there in uh, oh Lord, Oklahoma State. Uh, I forgot his name. Uh, but uh, I can't think of the guy's name right now. But it's linebackers. It's wide receivers. We're expecting three of them to go in the top 15. You know, so when all this stuff is going on, does it happen? It, it, that's how it seems. But every year we see a run in a certain position. We see things adjust. Then you got, like for me, three three guys I played against. Some of them are friends, Patrick Sertain and Joe Horn and, and uh, uh, you know, Asante Samuel. Their sons are getting drafted and predicted to be first rounders. You know? Yeah, it, so that, that, so that makes you feel old, don't it? <laughs> yes. There's it, so many different angles I'm looking at, but – the ultimate thing is, it is so many, so I mean, so much talent at the top twenty-five, top thirty. Let's see if a team who wants a certain guy and they, and he gets picked, do they follow up in that same position? Do they say, "Well, damn, I can get this guy to this other position," and that begins to change up what we suspected to be? Brian, if you had the opportunity to talk to Elijah Mitchell and Trey Regis, uh, fellow Raging Cajuns, as they are about to. Uh, find themselves drafted into the NFL. What's the one piece of advice, brother, that you would make sure to give them? I would tell them to enjoy and celebrate the moment. Uh, they get drafted wherever they get drafted. Don't be pissed at it. You know, be, be, be thankful because now you have an opportunity. But be prepared to work harder than they ever worked in their lives. Because, as I said earlier, it's easy to be drafted, as Ernest Byron told me, but it, it, it's even tougher to stay in this league. Getting drafted, if you get drafted in the third round, fourth round, fifth round, and you thought you'd get drafted higher, don't let that dictate your career. Just take that opportunity and work as hard as you can. And then, just like I talked with Steve Smith on my show today, Steve Smith was drafted back in, I think, 2005. He and, uh, uh, I think 2005 or 2001. 2005. He and uh, who else it was? Uh, Drew Brees. Drew was the last quarterback playing, and, and, and Steve was the last receiver playing. I was drafted in 1990. There were a lot of running backs that went before me. Only one, Emmitt Smith, played longer than I did. That right there says more than being where you were drafted. You know, a lot of people got drafted in the first round got cut. Some people got drafted in the fifth round played 14 years, and they just happened to be your fellow, Rachel Cajun. There it is. There it is. All right, bud, I have to, <laughs> I have to get your thoughts and, and, and let the people know about um, this latest endeavor that you have that's uh, away from the football field, uh, published author. Uh, you decided to um, uh, write a book. Tell us uh, what's going on with this uh, this latest endeavor of yours, and where can people check it out and place orders? Well, you can place orders on, on um, uh, what is it, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Amazon.com, or BBS30 is my website you can go on. 
But I, I was just sitting there, and I, I, I'm, uh, if you listen to me talk, I'm kind of that motivational person, always trying to give somebody something to think about. And a friend of mine, you know, as I talked to him a few times, they were like, look, uh, you should try to just put something out there so kid, kids need to hear stuff from people like you. You know, and then I had a, a friend of mine, uh, two friends, actually, Ken Harvey and Terry Crews, who wrote some kids' books. And I just decided to just start off with this book. It's called A Champion's Heart. And I basically break it down into a, a four-down situation, uh, talk about some things and things I faced and what I did with it or what I took away from it, what I learned from my parents and coaches and teachers and things of that nature, just to get them on a, on a, on a process. Because a lot of times kids believe that athletes show up as an athlete. When in, when in essence, we were exactly where they were, and we had to find ourselves, find our way to where we got. And I think that's the way, that's the whole thing I want to do with it. But have ideas of doing some other things and, uh, you know, seeing where I could take it because I just believe I want to get the many thoughts I have in a situation where I can get it to more people instead of trying to talk to people one at a time. Brian, I can't wait to uh, check it out, share it with my my own daughter. Uh, congratulations on all the success, brother. I mean, you could have easily kind of just uh, lived off your reputation. You are out there grinding it in the media world. Now you uh, have a, a book published, and uh, best of luck to you, brother. And thank you so much for your time. You're always so gracious, my friend. Oh, man, no problem at all, man. Take care. That's Brian Mitchell, Raging Cajun football legend. He was the first person in NCAA history to pass for more than 5,000 yards and rush for more than 3,000 yards. And then he spent, you know, 14 years in the National Football League, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, return specialists in league history. Appreciate his time joining us here on the Rap Game Podcast. That's going to do it for this episode. But look, if you want to check out any past episodes, you just hit up 1037thegame.com. They're all archived right there. Just click on the Rap Game Podcast tab, and you can access and listen to all previous episodes free of charge. Until next time, y'all be safe out there. Be kind to one another. I'll talk to you soon.